As has already been mentioned this afternoon, we're certainly delighted for our membership at Pippin, for your number here with us tonight, and also for the visitors who've come our way. We're certainly delighted that you have chosen to do so, and we're hopeful for each of us that our worship will truly be in truth and in spirit, in the language of John 4.24, and in so doing will be well-pleasing in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. As you may have continued to hear a few moments ago, certainly our gospel meeting is creeping so, so much closer we are now less than 168 hours, that's the number of hours in a week, and in so doing, Brother Tom Holland is making preparations and certainly is making plans to be with us, and we're making plans to have him here with us as well. Please keep that meeting in your prayers, please keep the thoughts concerning it in, in the forefront of each of our minds, and in that way, the meeting hopefully will be a tremendous blessing for the work of the Lord here at Pippin, and certainly in this community and everywhere that we have opportunity to send its influence. The lesson this evening has as its title, The Man of Sin. As you may have noted in the bulletin, that is the particular title that I've chosen to use. And furthermore, that the lesson text, as was read just a moment ago, taken from 2 Thessalonians 2, will be the place where we'll rivet our attention for the next few moments this evening. It may well be that this topic, The Man of Sin, or at least the title, might be at least at this point sufficiently fuzzy that it might be challenging to notice the explicit direction that we may take with that. But I would invite you to notice again that that exact phrase occurs near the close of verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it is that that led me to the title of the lesson tonight. Some of those thoughts, in fact, are a continuation of a lesson that I considered last Lord's Day morning with you. One week ago today, for the morning lesson, we gave our attention to some issues about the hierarchy, the organization of the church. In fact, that was the title of that lesson, The Organization of the Church. And during the course of that study, we learned by way of conclusion that the plan set forth in the New Testament involved each congregation of the Lord's people being independent of each of the others, and furthermore, that each one was autonomous, meaning that no congregation has the God-given right or liberty to enforce its view or its will on another congregation. That autonomy and that independence maybe is manifested ever so clearly in the matter before us in 2 Thessalonians 2. That's why I chose to make this a two-part series, with tonight being the closing and final part to that series. What might be some of the issues or problems that might result if the organization set forth in the New Testament was neglected? What might be some matters that could develop if the instructions relative to the organization of the church were ignored? Does the Bible give us any information about that? The answer is yes, and here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is where we find some of the information in regard to that, to that matter. It is for that reason tonight I would ask you to think with me about the man of sin and how that this is case in point, exhibit A if you will, about the nature of what can happen if the organization of the church as taught in the Bible is neglected. As we begin this lesson though, might we do so first by reflecting on the Thessalonian letters. The books of Thessalonians as they occur in the New Testament we realize two of these books, the book of 1 Thessalonians and then followed by the book of 2 Thessalonians, between them there's eight chapters. Quite frankly, they're rather brief letters, but isn't it remarkable how so easily and directly one can conclude the major subject that is found in each of them. 
Let me highlight some of that with you, if I might, for just a moment. As is so often the case with respect to those New Testament books, the background and history of the book is actually in the book of Acts. The book of Acts sets before us the occasion in Acts chapter 16 and 17 when the Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey was coming in the sense of he left Athens and then ultimately came to Philippi and in so doing, of course, on to the city of Thessalonica. It is with that in mind that some of these comments are then worthy to note. When Paul came to Thessalonica, we observe in chapter 17, verse 1, that he first went to the synagogue, and on that occasion, he began to preach, and for three consecutive Sabbaths, he preached and taught. Thankfully, there were quite a few who expressed interest, and in fact, the gospel began to have a large amount of success, especially among the Gentiles and even among the, the Gentile women. But we noticed that problems quickly arose. The Jews did not believe, by and large, and they caused difficulties for Paul, insomuch so that they ultimately forced him to leave town. Here was a preacher of the gospel, Paul, forced to leave Thessalonica because of the unwillingness of the Jews in that city to tolerate the message. Isn't that sad and tragic? However, Paul quickly, though, went on his way. He came to the city of Berea. As he arrived at Berea, one more time the gospel had some success, and especially among the Jews, or among the Greeks, and particularly among the female, the women of the Greeks. Interestingly enough, though, the Jews of Thessalonica heard that the gospel was having some success at Berea. They sent some of their own number there and caused problems even in Berea for Paul. And so one more time he was forced to leave. For his own safety, the brethren in Berea urged him to go elsewhere. That leads us to those next comments. When Paul was forced to leave on this occasion, he ultimately would all come to another city. But might we not forget that there were two companions, one of which was Silas, one of which was Timothy. We recognize they, the text tells us, did remain in Berea for a little while. But Timothy was especially given a commission, a charge if you please, so that he was to go back to Thessalonica. The brethren there needed some encouragement. The church there, though young it was, it needed a greater element of maturity that could be found in Timothy. In fact, though, we do find something intriguing. When Timothy went back to Thessalonica... Paul was very anxious and earnest to meet back up with him because he wanted to know how the brethren there were doing. That does highlight for us the following. There, long before the days of cell phones and long before the days of telephones and long before the days of internet email, Paul had no other way to communicate with Timothy, so he was anxious to meet back up with him at Corinth. And when Timothy came... Timothy shared good news about the brethren in Thessalonica. He shared good news about how that this young congregation was at least at this point remaining steadfast and strong. However, you'll notice that the scene turned rather quickly because that brings us to these books, these Thessalonian letters. In them, what is it that we find? We find that a particular element of misunderstanding had crept in amongst the Thessalonian church. There were some things they did not understand in the way that they ought to have. There were some matters about which they were uncertain. 
as you and I read these books of Thessalonians, it's clear what the misunderstanding was. They had some misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ. There were some things about that that they did not fully appreciate. And so these two letters were written, First and Second Thessalonians, with the intent to solidify their thinking on these points, to correct their misunderstandings, and to help them fully appreciate the gospel truth relative to that subject. It is for that reason I would invite you to notice that the central theme of both of these books is the second coming of Christ. At the very bottom, I have chosen to extract a verse or two out of all eight chapters just so we can each understand even better how that that topic is the main one. It's a bit interesting that the very last verse or two of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter 4, all in 1 Thessalonians, deal with the second coming of Christ. It's clear Paul wished to settle in their mind the fact that the second coming is a matter of great importance. And for you and I as Christians, we must never take too lightly the truth concerning the second coming of Jesus. It is true that it's easy to live in a world in which that hardly ever is discussed. We often don't have many conversations that touch it. But it is a matter that's almost on every page of the New Testament, and especially in the Thessalonian letters. For instance, you'll notice among all those verses, some of these things are what we learn. First, the Thessalonian church, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10, was to wait for the second coming, to wait for the coming of Christ. We notice in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse number 2, but that day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, that day on which He is to return, that day in which He's coming back. That second coming and the characteristic of it leads you to also notice that in 2 Thessalonians, that same matter comes before us so often. At this point, perhaps we're each in a bit of wonderment. What then does the man of sin have to do with the second coming of Christ? After all, that was the title that I chose for the lesson. Perhaps it then would be fair to say our discussion needs to pursue forward and reach this point. Can we not at least make these final statements before we dig more deeply into 2 Thessalonians 2? First of all, among those verses that I just quickly noted at the bottom of that slide, the second coming is a certainty. We thus should appreciate that again, though it may not often be a matter of conversation. For Christians such as you and me, the second coming is a certainty. It's not as if we should doubt it. It's not as if we should have any misgivings about the certainty of that fact. I would ask you to notice that not only here, but even in other New Testament books, that same topic is raised. Maybe Peter states the question so very interestingly. In 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3, "...knowing this first, that in the latter days there shall come scoffers, denying..." These scoffers that are made mention of in that verse, you'll notice these scoffers ask a question in the next verse, saying, "...where..." is the promise of His coming. In other words, here were individuals referenced by Peter who said, the Lord hasn't come back yet. All things seem to continue as they were from the days of the creation, and yet He hasn't returned. And I might submit to you that now runs into almost 2,000 years. One generation has come, followed by the next. The rivers still run their course to the oceans. 
all seems to be as it has been. And yet we still, as believing Bible students, know for certainty that there's coming a time when this cycle of things is going to stop. The Lord will come back. And when He does, might we appreciate that it will be a sudden thing. It's not as if there will be an hour's warning, not even 30 minutes warning. In fact, not any warning. Did not Paul again say, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night? And even as Peter made reference to the same in 2 Peter 3 verse 10, that day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It is true, isn't it, that that second coming of Christ will coincide with the end of time as we know it. It will coincide with the final matter, the destruction, if you please, of this earth and the physical constituents of it. As that finality arrives, we can understand then so notably why that seems to be a perpetual topic of interest to the human family. It seems as if every time someone writes a book talking in some way about the end of time, it skyrockets to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And when it does, it may well speak of any number of imaginative things, speculative things, sensational things. But as it does, just as we learned this morning, what is the truth of the Bible on this point? Well, as we look at the Thessalonians again, they had some misunderstandings about this. It might well be in the course of this moment, it might be time to now shift our attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's read the first 12 verses of that chapter. And in so doing, let's let Paul, the inspired apostle, describe some interesting features about the second coming. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not... That when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know that, that, I'm sorry, and now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." And with that, Paul's inspired description and discussion of this point, including the man of sin, has reached its conclusion. It is with that in mind, and you again notice the reference to the man of sin. What is it then that Paul had to say here? One of the first things you'll notice 
about the lesson from this point forward is that it may be a little different in format than usual. In essence, from this point, let's look at it verse by verse and do a mini study on a verse by verse basis of those verses that we just read together. In verse number 1, Paul besought the brethren there in Thessalonica. And in so doing, you'll notice he made reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus, yet one more time setting before them and us the features surrounding the second coming of Christ. But then quickly in verse 2, we learn that ye be not soon shaken in mind. It was Paul's desire that they be not distracted, that they be not distressed in mind, because you'll notice in that verse that they could in fact be troubled. Religious false doctrine can be very troubling, can't it? It can be unsettling. It can in fact dissuade us from the truth and the uncompromised character of the truth of God. But you'll notice that there were some reasons mentioned in verse 2. He makes reference to spirit by word or by letter as from us. It would appear that someone had written a letter to the church in Thessalonica and they had signed Paul's name to it despite the fact he had not written it. It was in essence a forged letter and it made some statements about the second coming of Christ that were not true. And so Paul now writes this correct inspired letter saying, I never said that. And what is it he did not say? That the day of the Lord is at hand. One of the things that the Thessalonians were misunderstanding was they thought the second coming of Christ was going to be immediate. That is to say, in a very few days or perhaps months from the time they were then living. Again, Paul wrote and said, I never said that. It is true, we do live in the last days and we live in the last age, but yet this last days has now been ongoing for almost 2,000 years. We do see also in verse number 2, this day of the Lord is at hand is what the Thessalonians were thinking. But now Paul was quick to say in verse number 3, Let no man deceive you by any means. It's as if Paul asserted to them, Please don't let anyone, by the eloquence of their language, by the assertions of their thinking, don't you let anyone deceive you. For that day, what day, Paul? That day, that is the second coming of Christ. That day shall not come, except there shall come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. We then learn that Paul on that occasion to the Thessalonians said, the second coming of Christ is not going to happen until some things occur first. And these are the following. A falling away is supposed to take place. Second, the man of sin is to be revealed. Paul said these two things shall occur, shall take place before Christ returns. We've often made note in our lessons, in our Bible studies here, that there are no signs supposedly of the second coming. Jesus in fact said that in Matthew 24 beginning in verse 36. But now we notice Paul has at least made some statements about things that were to happen prior to the second coming. Again, the revelation of the man of sin on the one hand and the falling away on the other. It might be interesting to ask, what are these two things? And have they happened? For after all, if they have, we can rest assured then, sure enough, the second coming could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. Let us, in fact, notice the following. That phrase, falling away, 
is a translation of an original word that is apostasia. Now that sounds a lot like a word with which you and I are pretty familiar. Apostasy, the same Greek word. In other words, Paul said there's going to come an apostasy prior to the second coming of Christ. This apostasy, A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y, this apostasy is a falling away. A movement from a position of steadfastness, a position of faithfulness moved away to a position of unfaithfulness. We notice then that Paul carefully used that term to describe a supposed defection from the truth. This isn't the only place Paul appears to have described this. Maybe our mind races to 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, when to that young preacher, that man named Timothy, Paul said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. All that's found in verse 1. Then he quickly asserts in verse number 2, that these would have their conscience seared with a hot iron. What are some of the things these teach? Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats. Two of the things that would be a part of and would be descriptive of this mass defection from the truth. I would ask you to think about that if perhaps that will not be an important matter later in our lesson tonight. But after all, as we give thought to this man of sin... Verse number 3, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, says, And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Immediately, I suppose each of us would like to know, so who is this man of sin? What is he like? How will we recognize him? Does the Bible say any more about him? It heightens our attention to even think about passages such as this one. It is for that reason that countless descriptions of the man of sin have been given. And I should be quick to say that one of the more common presentations is that this is the Antichrist. That is not true. This is not a description of the Antichrist. We learned earlier that, again, several weeks ago as we gave thought to the Antichrist on a Sunday morning lesson, that Antichrist is a very different description than this one. So who then is the man of sin if he's not some supposed Antichrist? Let's read further. Verse 4, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." This man of sin that we already have read about seemingly makes us think about some other places of description in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 7, reference is made to the little horn... And as one remembers that, especially verses 25 and 26 of that chapter, it makes one think about this man of sin. As one thinks about the sea beast of Revelation 13, it makes one think about this. There's enough similarity. One can't help but notice the correspondence. It is for that reason I've in fact listed them at least for your consideration. It seems as if there are three references that join together in beautiful harmony all pointing to about the same thing. It is for that reason we now come to this man of sin more interestingly in verse 4. We learn that he opposes God. This man of sin has the nerve, the gall to oppose God. Now frankly, he may well do so indirectly and unintentionally, but he does oppose God. 
Then, next you'll notice, he exalts himself above all that is called God. Here is the man of sin who apparently thinks enough of himself. He exalts himself even above God. Almost unthinkable, isn't it? To appreciate that oneself, a mere individual, or some other association to a person could actually think you're above God, and yet this man of sin does. Beyond that, in verse number 4, or that is worshipped. This man of sin apparently thinks so much of himself, he makes himself the object of worship. He actually wants to be worshipped. Let's read further. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You may notice again that Paul in his description does not say this happens directly. Apparently, this individual gives the appearance of being religious. He gives the appearance of presenting those matters that draw one closer to God when in fact he opposes God, he exalts himself above God, he even demands to be worshipped. Our thoughts only deepen as to who then is this. Verse number 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? While Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, he warned the brethren there in the first century about the reality of these things of which we've spoken. Paul warned them that this kind of consideration was going to happen. He warned them that this was going to take place, but he warned the brethren not to fall for it. He warned the brethren there not to give consent to it. We notice though in these Thessalonian letters that they still did have some misgivings about that second coming. But oh, how severely they needed to know about the man of sin. Verse number 6, And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. That word withholdeth means to restrain. There was a force at work in the first century that was restraining the pursuit of and the further development at that time of this man of sin. That immediately helps us appreciate that apparently this reference is not to a single human, not to a single man, not to a single individual. It was a movement. And this movement was such that there were forces at work in the first century that were restraining it, not allowing it to fully bloom and blossom. However, in verse number 7, "...for the mystery of iniquity doth already work." That mystery... This iniquity, and that word iniquity is the translation of the word lawlessness. This mystery was already at work. There were already those who were beginning to feel this way. There was already a falseness, a falsehood, an error, an iniquity, whereby this, when fully developed, would in fact be exactly what Paul said it was. This mystery of lawlessness was already at work. Again, you'll notice it wasn't then a reference to a single man per se, but it goes on to say in verse 7, "...only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way." The time was going to come when the restraining force was going to be removed. That force that was at work then holding things in check, it was going to be removed. And when it was, verse 8 says, "...and then shall that wicked be revealed." When the restraining force was taken out of the way, this man of sin would be fully exposed, he would be fully developed, he would fully present himself. And verse 8 goes on to say, 
that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. It would thus appear again another reference to the second coming, and so it seems that this lawlessness, when fully developed, it would remain in existence until the end of time. It shall be here even as far as the Lord shall come back. Whatever this error is represented by, and whatever the matter of this man of sin is, it's with us now, and it will be so until the end of time. No wonder Paul had so much to say about this man of sin, and our curiosity continues to be heightened. As you'll notice, furthermore, we come to verse, verses 8 and 9, when again we notice the wicked be revealed that shall remain until the end of time. Verse number 9 then says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This man of sin, remember back in verse 4 we had learned he gave the appearance of being religious. He is to be worshipped. He even exalts himself above God. And yet verse number 9 says he's of the devil. He's of Satan. That verse again reads, whose coming is after the working of Satan. It's the devil behind this man of sin. It's not God. And it's not the power of good either. It is the force of evil embodied in this man of sin. On to verse number 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. The human family, you see, was given an opportunity to respond to the truth, but yet numbers of them chose to pursue this man of sin. Numbers of them were engulfed by the error with which this man of sin was presented. And you'll notice verse 10, they were deceived. And in that deception, it says they perish. They'll end up losing their soul because of this. The man of sin is no minor matter, is it? You'll notice the last matter in verse 10 they received not the love of the truth. The things this man of sin teaches is wrong. It's error. It's ungodliness and it's iniquity. And what's more, it is opposed to the truth. And verse 11 says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. God wasn't the originator of this lie. God allows the human family His own choice in terms of believing. They had the truth and they chose to reject it. They also were presented with error and they chose to believe and follow it. Is it God's fault that they chose to believe the lie? Is it God's fault they chose to follow that which was false? Of course not. But because of that choice, verses 11 and 12 says, "...that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness." Our God is a God of justice, will in fact send those who have chosen to believe this error in the man of sin into a final abode that's far separated from Him. This man of sin, of which we have learned so far, perhaps now the time has come in the remaining time of the lesson to ask. So as we put together this reference in 2 Thessalonians 2, with that prescription of Daniel 7, the assertions of Revelation 13, is it possible to reach a conclusion as to who or what this man of sin was? What did it represent? What was this man of sin that upon being revealed 
it would ultimately blossom into that which has just been described. Might I ask you to think about some of the thoughts on the bottom of that slide. In the first century church, those books that you and I read about in the New Testament, at that time there were apostles who, of course, had the opportunity and the power to work spiritual gifts. They could lay their hands on and they could do other various and sundry things that were mighty and powerful that could keep the truth firmly in the mindset of those in that day and era. But it certainly is also true that they were already at that time beginning to develop mindsets, theologies, considerations that were opposed to the truth. The New Testament is filled with it. The books of 1 John, for example, highlight some of the thoughts that were already becoming prevalent. The book of Galatians highlights some of the thinking that was opposed to the gospel, but that was being accepted by large numbers. The book of Revelation highlights somewhat later in the first century the features again about how that so many had chosen to accept what was not the truth. For instance, do you recall the seven churches of Asia with me? You might remember that a couple of those churches, Jesus told them, you have accepted the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now what was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? It was a doctrine that ultimately would manifest itself in some of the things upon full maturity that we've read about tonight in 2 Thessalonians 2. And it was already beginning to work in the churches of the first century. People were already being misled, deceived, accepting of what was not true. May we now put some of those thoughts together with these bottom slides. Those features, those mistruths, those false doctrines that were beginning to appear in the thinking of some, as long as men like Paul and Peter and John and some others were there to meet it head on and to eradicate it, that was such a powerful element in good. But what would happen after a few decades when all the apostles had died? What would happen when the time had come when that strength and that element of uncompromising stature was gone? We noticed that things began to develop pretty quickly. In fact, we began to notice some of these things. There was a slow and gradual development over a few hundred years. A development that might lead us to revisit verse 4 again. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God... Can you think of a movement, the end result of which led to a person, a man, who exalted himself above all that's called God, and one who occupies a position, a location, a stature of being venerated by human beings as if he even were greater than God himself. There is a man ruling from the Vatican who in fact is in that very position. He is worshipped, folks bow before him, the first pope, as far as we know, ascended the position in 606 A.D. It took roughly 400 years for the initial seeds of this to have reached its full-blown stature. But when it did, it snowballed thereafter. When Boniface III positioned that first pope as he did, again, the early part of the 7th century A.D., we notice from that point forward we have had these gentlemen occupying that position, and may we be frank, they have often had positions of tremendous respect and veneration, even from kings. 
Many a king has bowed before them. In fact, ask them to decide boundaries of countries on their behalf. These popes, these pontiffs, these so-called vicars of Christ are individuals described in some of the ways that I've set forth there. They would be quick to say, we are on God's side, but the fact they do not teach this book means they're lawless, means that they have taught and asserted that which is not true. And furthermore, you'll notice another feature. Verse number 4, showing himself that he is God. I used a moment ago a title. The Pope, the Pontiff, the Holy See, if you please, which is the name he chooses to call himself, is a gentleman who is called the Vicar of Christ, V-I-C-A-R. And if you look that word up, you'll find that it places this person, this gentleman, as a co-authoritarian figure with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And is that not blasphemous? To bring to oneself the nerve to call oneself a co-authority figure with Jesus? Supposedly, in the same way that Jesus currently reigns in heaven, the Pope reigns on earth. It is a frightening thing, at least in my mind, and I'm sure it is yours as well, to imagine putting yourself on an equal with the second member of the Godhead. And yet He does. That development, let's look at even more thoroughly. You'll notice that just as surely as verse 4 describes the heightened maturity to which this movement would come. And notice again, Paul said it would take a while to develop. Paul, however, in verse 5 had warned the brethren that this is coming. And today you and I can rest assured it has already come and it is fully developed and has been so now for almost 1,400 years. At this point, notice verse 6. There was a force at play that kept this development more slowly than it otherwise would have been. Apparently from the wording of the Bible... The first pope would have long been appearing before 606 A.D. if this force had not been restraining it. It seems as if the mind of man is very interested in putting authoritarian figures in place. And we hinted at this in that lesson last Lord's Day morning. When you take the elder of one congregation and thus two congregations come together and appoint one man over the two of them, and a whole district of churches come together and appoint one man over the group. You can see it took a few hundred years for that kind of matter to ultimately develop to appoint one man over all the churches of the earth. And that's what has happened. Just as surely as that took a few hundred years, what was the force maybe holding that in check for at least a little while so that it didn't develop any sooner than it did? Oh, may I submit to you two things come to mind. One is that very matter that we had mentioned earlier. At least for a while there was the powerful majesty and might of those apostles and their capability of inspiration in the initial texts and the characteristic associated with the spiritual gifts. But we also notice another force that seemingly was very astute and powerful. It was the Roman Empire itself. The civil government of the Roman Empire. You see, that government, for a while, it was the Roman Caesars that were in authority, not anyone religious. And it was the Caesars who held it in check. But what happened when the Roman Empire fell? When in 476 A.D. the Byzantines overran Rome, crushed it, and destroyed it, 
Notice from that time, it only took a little over a hundred years for the first pope to be appointed. Once the Roman Empire was destroyed, once it crumbled, once it became just a dust part in history, it seems as if the Catholic system, as you and I call it, reached its ascendancy almost immediately. It is for that reason it seems as if not only Daniel chapter 7, not only Revelation 13, not only 2 Thessalonians 2, but all of them harmonize to point to what can happen when the organization of the church is ignored. This particular study we've made tonight takes us to verses 7 and 8. The wicked shall be revealed, that man of sin. And you and I now appreciate that this man of sin has long since been revealed. It has established in its fullest degree. And as we learned earlier, it will remain with us until the end of time. As Paul made that statement in verse number 8, that tells us this kind of error is one that is going to be ongoing, perpetual, and one that the truth must always oppose from now until the second coming of our Master. As you'll notice in verse number 9, this error, this man of sin, you'll notice is after the working of Satan. Again, the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, if you please, would never say that it is in the army of the devil, but Paul said that it is. And Paul said that as in as much as it is the devil behind this, because think of how many multiplied millions, both today and in centuries past, have been devout followers of this system that is not true. This system that is described as a man of sin. Even to this day, isn't it shocking to recognize what is supposed to happen as a person approaches the Pope. If you or I were granted an audience with the Pope, you and I would be expected to appear before him and to bow in an element of respect and in fact even do great element of veneration to his person. Be that to kiss that statue of him that's there located in the Vatican or to do something else, again, that would in essence be worshipful in character. All of that stands so opposed to everything the New Testament asserts. For we notice, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, one of the last thoughts perhaps of our lesson this evening on that slide at least. When Peter preached to the household of Cornelius... You recall that Cornelius was overwhelmed in respect for Peter. In fact, when Peter arrived from that distant place, Cornelius fell down before him and worshipped him. If Peter was the first pope, why didn't he pat him on the head and say, I appreciate that and may you be blessed for that worshipful spirit. But yet that's the furthest thing from what Peter said. In fact, Peter said, stand up. I myself am also a man. Peter knew that he was not to be worshipped. He knew that only God was to be worshipped, Matthew 4, verse 10. And it's somewhat tragic that there are humans, the man of sin, who still haven't learned that lesson. Maybe in light of all of those thoughts, these comments then come before us. The organization of the church, with her elders in each local congregation only, is the way in which we can keep this error at bay. Nobody, either in Rome or anywhere else, can dictate the matters of the Pippin Church of Christ and do so at least lawfully. You and I are answerable to God and our elders as they lead us and guide us. We are to obey them, Hebrews 13, 17, 
And in so doing, we each, in this local, independent way, can serve as a stronghold of the faith. Even if a congregation down the road or nearby were to make inroads into error, we need not follow them, for we don't serve the same human leader they do. In that sense, if we will but respect the nature of the organization of the church, oh, how things could have been different as the centuries had passed. But today we live in this system in which the man of sin has now been revealed. All that Paul spoke of has now taken place. The revelation of the man of sin and the great apostasy that was to accompany him has now taken place. And so the second coming of Jesus can occur at any time. The second coming of Christ could happen any moment, any day. May we each then live wisely so we'll be ready. Jesus said, watch. Matthew 25, verse 36. And as He urged us to watch, might I ask, are you and I watching carefully? For no man knoweth the day nor the hour when our Savior will come. Mark 13, 32. If tonight you aren't prepared, if you aren't ready, if you haven't been watchful, then perhaps we each should quickly think about these matters. The plan of salvation has been given us. And no matter what a man anywhere else may teach, Christ taught that the plan of salvation is this. Hear the word of the Lord and believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist one or more in that regard tonight, what a joyous occasion it would be. If you have become a New Testament Christian, but your faithfulness is not what it ought to have been, Maybe you've been persuaded by things that are false and lived in ways that are shameful to the cause of Christ that you once held so dear. Why not come back to your first love tonight? We would be delighted to pray for you and with you. And if we could be of help to anyone in the audience, won't you let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.